Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 255, Aaron Schellenberger, From Trinitarian to Unitarian, Part 2. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, to a large extent, my interview subject turns around and starts asking me questions. We also talk about more of his experience in making this theological transition, how it's affected his family relationships and church life, and he also has some advice to give for evangelical Christians who are starting to re-examine this issue on a biblical level. But before we get to that, I just wanted to announce that I have another upcoming debate It's with Chris Date, who you might know from his Rethinking Hell project. In brief, he's an evangelical apologist who, because of his study of the Bible, aided by Edward Fudge, changed his view about hell. He changed from the eternal conscious torment view to what I would call an annihilationist view. He calls it conditional immortality. I myself made that switch some years ago. Not because I'd read Edward Fudge, but because of my study of the Bible and also just some philosophical considerations. So I admire his courage and his hard work on that front. Some time ago, he proposed that he and I should have a debate either about the Trinity or about the deity of Christ, and I chose the deity of Christ. My first debate with Dr. Michael Brown was intended to be about the Trinity The way it worked out and the way the debate question was written, he kind of wanted it to be more about just the deity of Christ, which is really the evangelical emphasis. And this debate is going to put the Trinity off to one side and just focus on this debate question. Jesus is human and not divine. I'm the pro side. He's the con side. That Jesus is human and not divine. I've seen a couple of Chris State's earlier debates, and I was favorably impressed. I think he's a smart guy. I think he speaks well. I think he does his homework. In everything I've seen, he treats his opponents in a Christ-like manner. So I'm really looking forward to having a friendly but detailed and deep and direct argument about this question. To me, the implications of Scripture are pretty clear once we clarify the meaning of divine, which is the first thing that needs doing. Mr. Date obviously thinks that there is a strong case that the Bible teaches that Jesus is divine. In other words, that he has the divine essence, like some of the creeds say. This debate is going to be May 31st. It will be hosted at Pine Grove Bible Church in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, which I'm happy to say is within my denomination, the Church of God General Conference. Like the previous debate, it's sponsored and organized by Kingdom of God Ministry and Missions. So I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode to their Facebook page where you can see more information about this, even the address of the church. And if you believe in these kind of debates, let me encourage you to visit their Facebook page and their website and make a donation. As I release this podcast, they're still in the process of raising funds for this event. And of course, we hope to reach many more thousands through YouTube and through podcasts than can actually attend the event. So I do think it's a good investment. I hope some of you can make it. This is in Greater Minneapolis, which should be lovely on May 31st. And before we get back to the conversation with Aaron Schellenberger, he let me know about a quick correction from part one. 
When he was talking about the Iglesia Ni Cristo, he said that Felix Manalo, when he was trying to decide what God's will was for him, stayed in his room for 10 days. It was actually three days, not 10 days. So without further ado, let's jump right back into my conversation with Mr. Aaron Schellenberger. Mr. Schellenberger, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you. Mr. Schellenberger, when it comes to discussing the Bible, I've noticed that there's a big asymmetry when it comes to Unitarians and Trinitarians. Unitarian Christians generally do know Trinitarian interpretations of Scripture, but the reverse is not so. In general, lay people and even a lot of scholars just seem to not be aware of Unitarian interpretations of various passages. Why do you think that is? The Trinitarian tends to get lazy because majority of the Trinitarian scholars support his view. And for the Trinitarian, he would say something like, yeah, the text is obvious. John 1.1 is obviously saying Jesus is God Almighty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there is a level of laziness there. And once laziness settles in, the Trinitarian would not want to go beyond that. He would tend to be dishonest with it without actually honestly, objectively looking at the text, that the text might be saying something else. It's an intellectual shortcut we all take. You know, we say, well, the real experts, which of course the people who hold my view, uh, they all agree that it obviously says this. And so why do I need to bother to think about this? Yeah, but you know, when the experts disagree, which is what we have in these cases, then you just can't say, well, all the experts agree. So there is a complacency and a laziness there that can come into it. What I try to do too is not to pass a moral judgment on Trinitarians because there are some sincere Trinitarians out there, to be fair. Sure. But even for those sincere and honest ones, there is a level of laziness in not going beyond what's being propounded, such as, you know, the text in John 1.1 is clear. It says, Jesus is God, full stop. Yeah, as a former philosophy professor, one thing that kills me is, you know, when, when you're teaching a philosophy class, say on the topic of free will, you don't just read like the people who hold to one view, say people who say there is no free will. You try to go after who you think has the best arguments on all sides. And so, say, if you're not inclined to believe in free will, then you go out and find some of the best, you know, most carefully argued pieces by philosophers where they're saying, no, they're, you know, humans do have free will. They do have free choice. You seek out whoever can make the absolute best case for the opposite or for the contrary views. And I don't find Trinitarians doing that. I mean, they're very happy to just say this is obvious and they don't read the Socinians or the uh, early American Congregationalist Unitarians or they just don't care that there's this minority Protestant report out there. They used to argue with it in the 1800s, but they find it convenient just to sort of ignore it now. And as a philosopher, that always bothered me. And when I found out that there were these historical sources, I had to go and read them. And that was part of what drove me back to examining the Bible myself. That's really interesting, man. I'm glad you did all that stuff because now it's slowly making some waves. And I have a feeling that um, there are sincere Trinitarians, even apologists out there, who are getting tired, I believe, of defending the Trinity. 
Yeah, I mean, these are not easy things to defend. Yeah, when I was looking into these historical sources, I was kind of shocked, but maybe pleasantly surprised to find out that a lot of these people were just obviously godly Christians who had Christian attitudes and Christian beliefs and believed in the gospel. Who are we talking about? The, the biblical Unitarians? or Yeah, historical people. Uh, you know, Samuel Clark, Noah Worcester, to some extent, Joseph Priestley, although he was an odd fellow, other early American Unitarians, even Socinus. I mean, I found that they, they were real Christians. They had spiritual lives. They acted like Christians. Uh, they totally weren't yeah. just mindless cultists. And I mean, the one thing they had in common was they were kind of lifelong students of the New Testament. And that's why they hmm. came to Unitarian views. That's kind of the common thread there. You know, I basically changed my mind myself before I even knew any Unitarian Christians in real life. Really? Yeah, I was just, you know, I was driven back to the Bible by these sources. And I could see that it said that the one God was just the Father himself. And uh, I was pleased to find out you know, when I met people like uh, Sean Finnegan and Anthony Buzzard, I, I was pleased to find out that they're just Protestants. They're Christians and their theology yes. and their Christology is different, but their ethics are the same. You know, their church life is similar to other churches yeah. where they deal with their families. Trinitarianism is just an added baggage mm -hmm. and it, it is a huge obstacle, unfortunately, for Muslims and Jews and you know, even for skeptics to become Christians. And for me, once you remove that obstacle, it's much better and easier way to Christianity, mm -hmm. easier way or path to Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my experience was like yours. I mean, this didn't harm my faith. This didn't drive me to say, well, wow, does God really exist? I mean, I wasn't mad. I didn't think I'd been lied to exactly. I just thought there was this theory. Yeah, yeah. I'm not even angry, anything like that, or I, I don't think anybody in particular or a group or, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, I don't think they necessarily deceive people. It's just uh, due to a number of different things. Things just converge into the church, you know, believing the Trinity or de defining certain terms and, and so on. Yeah. There is no deception there. There is no dishonesty per se. Not directly. I mean, there there's a degree of authoritarianism there, you know, that... There is, yeah. And political clout. Yeah. These views became so predominant, Imposed. you know, basically by ecclesial yeah. force. Yes. But yeah, I mean, still, when you're dealing with Trinitarians on the whole, you're dealing with sincere believers who are just trying to make sense of the Bible, and they think this is how it makes sense. One thing that got my attention was just the fact that they're, the different Trinitarians are saying contrary things to one another. I realize yeah. there isn't one glorious theory. There isn't some big discovery here. There's this traditional right. language that they're all struggling with and trying to interpret. Some of them don't want to interpret it, but other ones, you know, they interpret it as, you know, the eternal dance of three divine beings. And other people think it's basically God's three personalities. Wow, I mean, those are pretty different. And then some just, you know, refuse to interpret it, refuse to give analogies. And okay, that's mm. that's a different thing. Uh, some defend apparent contradictions, like Dr. James Anderson. Okay, that's a different thing. Yeah, I was willing to hash it out at great length. 
partly because I was looking for a place to land. Like I would have much preferred for social reasons to remain a Trinitarian. Right. And that's why I wanted to find one of those that worked. Uh, let me tell you something. Your discovery that you actually put on your website is one of the things that broke the camel's back for me. The moment I realized that there are so many theories of the Trinity and of the dual nature of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, as though those verses, those passages in the Bible aren't enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. When I ran across your, your historical uh, investigation, that's when I actually jumped ship. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know what? Forget this. I'm out of here. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any particular th good theory or right theory of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus. I'm out of here. I'm, I'm not even going to bother staying Trinitarian. It kind of ruins the whole narrative, you know, that this was some great discovery that, you know, we put our best heads together, mainstream Christianity, and right. and they figured out that this is the only way the Bible makes any sense. And I mean, yeah. it's just not like that. You know, what shocked me was being an evangelical, being Bible-oriented and, and being interested in apologetics. I was primed to think that the Trinity was supposed to be this important thing that you would believe it's supposed to be like a deep insight. It's the key that unlocks all theology and so on. And when I went back historically, I was kind of shocked to find people like Augustine basically just saying, well, now you say this, the Council of Chalcedon and the Second Ecumenical Council at Constantinople, they basically just mandated language. You say this, this is what you must say. Right. And they didn't actually provide any kind of intelligible interpretation. And so that's why, you know, really smart intellectuals like Christian philosophers today, they're running around like trying to interpret this. So you get wildly different stuff. You get Bill Craig coming up with his own idiosyncratic Trinity theory that nobody yes. ever held before. And then you get Bill Hasker, both very brilliant people, very sincere people. Right. Bill Hasker's got a three, he's got a three self view. And then Brian Leftow, also brilliant. He's got clearly a one-self view, and it all goes back to the fact that we, just mainstream Christians, we were told what to say, but not what to think by people who thought that they could tell us that. What do you think is stopping a philosopher like Hasker to abandoning the Trinity? I know it's complicated, but, but if you can put it in one paragraph, answer. Do you think there is fear or there is... I don't know, he's too old to reconsider or something. No, it's... What do you think is holding them up? You know what it is? And and I've, you know, read everything he's written, and I've had a lot of interactions off the record with him. And I think this is true for a lot of people, not just for, not just for him. I don't think he's unusual in this respect. He finds it wildly implausible that God could have allowed a mistake like this to go down. Oh. Like, what's the chance that, you know, God's going to let... All these wonderful people like Calvin and Luther and Aquinas and Augustine. Like, what's the... Come on, man. It's like, a, it's like a conspiracy theory to him. Right. You know, my answer to him about that is, Bill, I thought you were a Protestant. Mm. Because any Protestant thinks that, say, the worship of saints kissing icons and genuflecting in front of statues not to mention transubstantiation and the papacy. I mean, we think that the mainstream just went kind of wonky in lots of ways, in practical ways and in theoretical ways. And yeah. if they can make all those mistakes, you know, 
I guess it's like a problem of evil thing. You know, why would God allow it? I don't know. I mean, he, he allows us to mess up a lot of things very badly. And I think I argued back to him one time, well, Bill, why do you think God allowed Israel to go astray? You know, the first covenant, right. because in the time of Jesus, it was, yeah, it was rather yeah. chaotic. You know, you had the Sadducees and the uh, Essenes yeah. and the Herodians. And I mean, clearly the view that Jesus most agrees with was the Pharisees, but even they had just dreadful yeah. problems, according to Jesus. Why did he let it get screwed up? I don't know, because he lets us screw things up, you know, and we have to take some responsibility, I guess. There are a couple of fellows in Trinity's Facebook that converted, quote-unquote, from biblical Unitarianism to Trinitarianism, Orthodox, Trini- mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodox. Mm-hmm. I think I have an answer, but I'm gonna, I'd like to hear your answer to this. Why do you think they converted to Eastern Orthodox Trinitarianism? Which is about monarchianism. Well, it's a form of monarchianism, right? Uh, well, <laughs> the Father is the only true God, but Jesus is not in that sense. Jesus is somehow eternally begotten, or I guess yeah. proceeding from the Father. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is proceeding, but <laughs> Jesus is eternally beget begotten. Well, I mean, but why do you think they converted to Eastern? It depends on the person, you know, in my opinion, most Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox people do believe in a triune God. And I've known people that have converted and they seem to believe in a triune God. Uh, But people like uh, Dr. John Baer and Dr. Bo Branson, they have gone back to what I consider a pre-Trinitarian stage of Orthodox development, like what you see in Basil of Caesarea. And they just think the one true God's the Father, but oh, by the way, he shared his divinity with these two other beings. And why is that not tritheism? Who knows? But I mean, Orthodoxy holds a lot of appeal, particularly to evangelicals, because it's so old, because they like the artwork and the music and just the the aesthetic quality of it. And yeah, that's it. That's my answer too. There's, there's also, you know, their apologists sell orthodoxy as the original thing. And yeah, a long time ago when I had a friend or two that converted to orthodoxy, I sized up that sort of argument as just propaganda. They are older than Protestants in their practices, but they just, they're more medieval than Catholic and Protestants. They didn't have the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, so their liturgy is mm. medieval, and their kind of mindset, in a, in a way, is more medieval. And, I mean, they're not just preserving apostolic practices. They're they're preserving yeah. medieval way, ways yeah. of understanding exactly, Christianity. Yeah. They confuse the two. Mm-hmm. Just because it's old, it makes it true, you know what I mean? There's a fallacy there, uh, but for me, it's not old enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I call it a telescoping fallacy. When people like us in the 21st century look back at people in the 400s or the 300s, yeah, we think, "Wow, those are early Christians." That you know, they really must know how to understand this. But no, man. I mean, look, we're not early Americans, right? I mean, your average, say, millennial person isn't very much like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. I mean, in 150 years, things can really go sideways. Yeah. And so it's quite wrong to think that these fourth century guys have some kind of special insight into 
how things are to be understood. Now, when you get back to first century people, that's a different story, or even early second century. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Schellenberger asks me what I think is the future for the biblical Unitarian movement. What do you think is going to happen in the next uh, few decades with the, you know, explosion of biblical Unitarianism online and on YouTube and BU writings surfacing? What's your prediction and what are you hoping to happen? What I hope happens is that a lot of people can get rid of this baggage and, you know, it'll enable them to better follow mm. Christ and to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength and love their neighbor as their self and really... And mind. Yeah, and mind and, and really advance the gospel in the world. Yes. And not just in the Western world, but oh, beyond. Man. And I hope that Unitarian Christianity gets just recognized as another theological member of the family And just like the non-fanatical Calvinists can recognize that, well, of course, Arminians are Christians. And of course, Catholics are Christians, at least most of them or many of them. Don't they seem like born-again people in many cases? There's a kind of traditional theological bigotry that I think needs to go away. Mm. It goes back to Athanasius's nasty rhetoric about the Arians, that they're just pigs, dogs, and just rotten guys all around and look we're trying to make sense of scripture and what jesus and his apostles taught and uh you might think we're wrong but you know let's let go of all the damnatory stuff and all the rhetoric about rationalism and yeah so i hope that happens and i'd like to see the movement grow and (laughs) where we are now as far as the theological world is concerned, is biblical Unitarians are considered too small to be a threat, too small in numbers. Right. And yeah, that's what I think they feel. We're just merely ignored. Mm-hmm. Once we grow bigger, then we'll be considered enough a threat to be worth refuting. Yes. And once they start to try to refute us, they're going to start losing arguments because. Once some of this information is more widely known, it's going to favor our side. The traditional system did depend on control of information. You know, in the old days, you had the Catholic magisterium. But, you know, there's really a creedal Protestant magisterium, too. The Reformed people are quite upfront about this. You know, you have to accept the Westminster Confession, etc., the reform people are very upfront that they have post-biblical tradition that's authoritative. Even uh, the non-Calvinist evangelicals are totally in denial about kind of the role that post-biblical tradition plays. Although the seminary educated people are more, they're more Catholic in their attitudes. You know, they're like, oh, come on, you've got to have like the first four or five ecumenical councils. Did you know that Francis Beckwith was one of the Protestants who became Catholics. Oh, yes. Who used to teach at my seminary. Mm-hmm. I also had three professors who converted to Catholicism. Jason Reed 
and Douglas Beaumont, and I forget the first name, but his last name was Bujizewski. They all taught uh, at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and later on they became Roman Catholics. Is that right? Because of their affinity towards Thomas Aquinas' theology and mm-hmm. argumentation. And it's really my training in apologetics that made me rethink the Trinity, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I know basic logic and putting together syllogisms, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, But what uh, seminaries do, and I have in mind evangelical American mainstream seminaries, what they do on the topic of the Trinity, I find, is they turn people into like really partisan Nicenes. And so they're basically indoctrinated into an Athanasian view of the whole thing, right? So these naughty Arians, you know, they just come out of the blue and they start denying things that Christians have always taught. Like Cardinal Newman said, they're just rationalists who Mm. have all this philosophy and they just deny things they can't fully understand. And so these destructive, you know, aliens basically come in and just like a cancer, you know, they threaten the very life of the church. And thank God, strong believers and wonderful men like Athanasius said, no, we're not going to take it. And and they reasserted Mm. uh, biblical theology. Almost everything I said is completely wrong. History just destroys that narrative I just said. And um, even a lot of Trinitarians know that now, but they're kind of coming up with a more subtle, more accurate narrative. But if you're a partisan Nicene, I mean, it kind of points you in the direction of just going with the bishop-dominated mainstream on other things. Mm. How can we have a canon if not because the church told us what the canon is? And then you're you're yeah. heading towards uh, towards Rome. I have the strong feeling that you got some Trinitarian apologists there who are honest, who are kind of scared. <laughs> they don't want to touch your your work, your your stuff there because they they have this feeling that they're going to start doubting. I just have that feeling, you know, that hunch. I don't know if you have the same the same hunch. Um, Yes. Or maybe I'm just hoping it to be. There's a lot of deliberate avoidance. Yes. There you go. About my work. Because of fear, I think. Yes. I've met, you know, evangelical philosophers and theologians who they just sort of realize that their views about the Trinity don't make sense and they're not really clear how well it fits the Bible. And they just realize that nothing but trouble lies in that direction. They're either oh, going to go man. modalist or tritheist, or they're going to they're going to get in trouble. They're going to lose their job. Yep. So they just want nothing to do with it. They they would rather talk about more popular topics, you know, science and faith, or how to refute the dastardly Bart Ehrman, or um, yeah, yeah, many yeah. many things. This resurrection of Jesus, and yeah. it's really a dangerous topic, and it's just it's only going to be trouble for you. I mean, I see Bill Craig whose work I think is pretty good right, and who's right. a fearsome debater among philosophers. He will, you know, get right out there with this very out there Trinity theory of his own. But when he's talking to a popular yeah. audience, I mean, he really wants little to do with the topic. Oh yeah. He realizes it's going to get him in trouble with other Trinitarians. And to be fair, he wants to focus on, you know, defending against atheistic attacks and the Trinity doesn't really come into that. Right. But, right. Yeah, other people, there's there's a lot of reasons to avoid it. And I was blessed enough to have a job in a state college. And so 
Yeah. Um, my yeah. colleagues were mostly atheists and they didn't care what I thought about the Trinity. And that made me not have to fear for my job. Yeah. Being excluded from other things, conferences and things like that has been a part of the price yeah. that I paid. If I was doing analytic philosophy work on the Trinity and defending it, okay. I think I'd be a fairly popular fellow. But part of the problem is that um, a lot of Christian philosophers who know some theology, like they think that theology would benefit from analytic philosophy. And so they're trying to get this movement going of analytic theology. And they're hypersensitive to concerns about heresy. The theologians are going to say, oh, these analytic philosophers, they're rationalists, you know, this is yeah, bad. Yeah. They're, they're not familiar with it. And they're, they're, they are very scared of analytic philosophy, mainstream theologians. And so they're trying mm. to, they're trying to sell analytic philosophy as a helpful tool for doing theology. And so, you know, my work is a total embarrassment there. They don't want to be associated with terrible heresy. At the same time, some of my Trinitarian philosophy professor peers, like, some of them think my work is good work. And when I talk one-on-one, -on -one, I can tell that. But <laughs> what they're going to you know, invite to their conference or really want to talk about publicly, or, that's not a safe move for them. And I do know some people I basically consider closet Unitarians who they have followed some of the arguments, you know, Christian philosophers specifically, they haven't avoided it. You know, their philosophers are curious. And so sometimes they look into it and, you know, it seems like they basically hold to my view, but they want nothing to do with the whole social loss that it would be to, um, to come out in the way that you have. When we return... I asked Mr. Schellenberger how this theological transition affected his family, and he also gives some advice for evangelicals starting down a similar path. So when you're making this big change in your life, how did this affect the people around you? How did it affect your wife? And, you know, where were you going to church? And how did all that go down? My wife was shocked when she found out about it. She asked me, what if I am wrong about my biblical Unitarianism? What if Jesus is really God in the flesh? And later on, I find out that that's true. What then? My answer to that was, if God is good and is really loving, and at the same time, he can see my sincerity and my honesty, and I have sought God with all my heart for answers, I think God is going to forgive me if he happens to be a Trinitarian God, and mm. I don't think God is going to punish me for my theology. Mm -hmm. And... I also asked my wife, well, what about this? What if Trinitarians are wrong and biblical Unitarianism is true? What then? So the question cuts both ways. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as my interaction with my wife, 
Our marriage has always been strong and it never was affected by it. I continue to be loving to her and continue to provide for her and, you know, be a faithful husband to her and, you know, just doing the normal Christian things. You know, I still attended regularly the church, a Southern Baptist church that I'm a member of. I don't tell anybody there that I am a biblical Unitarian, that I reject the Trinity, but I still continue to attend Sunday schools. Mm-hmm. My children, 21-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old son, they seem to be open to it, and uh, I'm not even forcing the issue to them. Mm-hmm. All I'm asking them is to listen to me, just have an open mind. And I'm not trying to convince them at this point. I'm just trying to explain to them if they have any questions. They seem to be open to it. And um, my wife, you know, we continue to have daily devotion. You know, we read a devotional book and pray together. I have four siblings, and I told every one of them what I now believe A couple were shocked, and the others don't really care much about that for as long as I continue to live the Christian life. Mm -hmm. That's all they care. And my mom is the same way. And Interesting. You still uh, fellowship at an evangelical, uh, officially Trinitarian church? I do, yeah. But they don't seem particularly, you know, concerned about heresy hunting and... Well, this particular church is big, and what I do is attend... Uh, Sunday school that is predominantly, you know, older men. And I get a lot out of that, a lot of good discussion, you know, mature discussion, mm-hmm. you know, going through Sunday school material you know, every Sunday morning. They do believe that, you know, you have to, some of them at least, you have to believe Jesus is God to be saved and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't ever mention that I am not a Trinitarian. Mm-hmm. I focus more on the Christian growth. Mm-hmm. Christian holiness, Christian walk with Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people in the evangelical world are quite afraid to come out. <laughs> For understandable reason. Yeah. I mean, my experience is that evangelical people very widely, a lot of them don't particularly care if they can see that you are trying to, you know, love God and to follow Christ and to honor God and Christ with your life. And they don't particularly care necessarily. And, you know, in truth, in a lot of evangelical life, as long as you don't bring up a conversation about the Jehovah's Witnesses, these are not a big part of the whole thing. They're kind of hovering in the background. My experience is that seminary-trained people who are in church leadership are the people who tend to be really harsh and crack down, tell you that you can get out or that if you stay, you have to shut up and not talk about it. So yeah, just to wrap this up, we haven't actually gone too much into the actual guts of the issues. Maybe next week we could talk about how you changed your mind about some of the passages that people focus on and some of the issues that a lot of evangelicals focus on and not just talk in abstract terms, but kind of get down to brass tacks about that. Would, would you be good with that? Oh, yes, Dale. I'm so looking forward to doing that. I am so eager to tell the world that the Trinitarian way of explaining the scripture is incorrect and there is a better way. So what advice would you give to somebody who's an evangelical and they're just starting to think about this and they're pretty afraid of what direction it might go? What advice would you give to them? 
I would advise the evangelical Trinitarian to, first of all, be trusting in God. You really have to trust God on this. No matter what, what does the Bible teach? You have to ask God with all of your heart. You have to seek Him with all of your heart. You also have to be honest. You have to be honest with what the Bible really teaches. Yes, you need to read commentaries and look at the original language, but you also keep in mind that there are some defective way of thinking in the part of Trinitarians. And last of all, be brave. God is with you. It's not going to be a good feeling. It's going to be shocking to a lot of people if you happen to abandon the Trinitarian view and change your mind, of course, and do something else or believe something else. But keep in mind that God is always going to be with you. That's my answer. At least if you stick with him, <laughs> if you stick with the gospel. If you stick with him, yeah. If yeah. you stick with the gospel as stick in with the, the Bible. Yep. Yeah, stick with the gospel. Stick with the basic things that Bible teaches. Continue to believe in God. Continue to believe the Bible as a reliable book. Continue to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he's coming back on earth to save us. Yeah, we can take his theology seriously as well. Mr. Schellenberger, thanks for talking with us. Thank you, Dale. God bless your ministry, and I'm looking forward to doing some wonderful things in advancing the biblical Unitarian view of God. Yeah, we look forward to seeing that. This week's thinking music is the track Between Worlds Instrumental by Tobias Weber, also known as Ausens at Eter. As always, on the blog post for this episode, there's a link where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.